Well, I've heard of people avoiding the pastor, but this is ridiculous. <laughs> Just so everybody knows, uh, Maya's doing well, no symptoms or anything like that. And um, if there were, I wouldn't be here, because if she shows any symptoms, we have to quarantine. Also, I wanted to uh, let you know, I was going to say this in the first video, but we're, we're not scared. We're not worried at all. Um, God's in control, and whatever he decides he wants to do, if he decides he wants to give us all the virus, then we'll, we'll go through that. But we're not scared. We're not, we're not freaking out. And many people have said, you know, we're praying for you, and I really appreciate that. Obviously, we don't want to get it because simply of the inconvenience that it causes and the inconvenience that it would cause many of you. So we're, uh, we're, we're definitely not worried about it. We're trusting the Lord as well. I did want to mention, along with everything else that went on this week, we got a letter from Public Health that said all employees and staff have to wear masks as well. So that's why Pastor Holland, Pastor Levi were wearing masks as well. So no, no longer are we able to stand up here and sing or preach or anything that, like that without our masks. So just so you know what's going on as well, obviously I was going to wear one this week anyway because of what was going on, but uh, at the same time, we got that letter, so we got all kinds of things going on. So continue to pray, and uh, we just want to continue to move forward and uh, continue to have church and continue to open the Word of God and learn from it. Would you take your Bibles with me and go to Ezra chapter 7? Ezra chapter 7. Ezra chapter 7. Most of you would be excited that I'm wearing a mask anyway because you can't see my facial expressions. <laughs> Ezra chapter 7. And I'm taking my glasses off simply because I can't see either way, so it doesn't matter. A little more comfortable. All right, I need you to raise your hand for me this morning. Let's get active, okay? How many of you like getting advice? Anybody like getting advice? Ah, <laughs> you got a few people that are like, eh. All right. Well, honestly, think about this. Before you make a big decision, uh, you often you will ask someone for advice. You'll often ask someone that you trust for their opinion and get some advice. Often nowadays, before we buy something big online, we'll read reviews. Listen, that's advice. Okay? You're getting advice. You try to get advice from people who have bought it before you. I think the reality is many of us like advice when we are asking for it right? We like advice when we are asking for it, but how many of you like advice when you have not asked for it? Not many of us enjoy that. There have been a few times in my life that I've gotten advice from someone who was, again, well-intentioned, uh, but I did not ask for it. But the interesting thing is there's a hybrid of things in between this. So there's something that you can have that's in between these two things. It is someone that you ask to constantly be on the lookout for you. It is someone that you ask beforehand to tell you if they see something wrong in your life. This is what you're doing. You're asking them for continual advice even when you don't ask for it. Does that make sense? You're asking them for continual advice even if you don't immediately ask for it. I want to preach to you a message that I've entitled this morning, Accountability in Rebuilding. Accountability in Rebuilding. But once you get that written down, write this down. Everyone needs accountability. Write it down, take it to the bank. Everyone needs accountability. There will be many people that shrug this off and say, listen, I don't need accountability. 
I don't need that at all. I am self-sufficient. I have it all under control. It doesn't bother me. I don't need it. I don't need it to move forward. There will be some people that see this statement, and they will say, I already have friends. I don't need to ask them to know everything in my life. I already have people that I hang out with, and I already have people that I spend my time with, I don't, but I don't need to ask them to delve into my life any further. I like them where they are at an arm's length. And I understand both of these situations, but the reality is there's a problem with these two viewpoints. The problem is this. They assume that they know all the areas that they need for growth. They assume that they know all the areas that they need for growth. They assume that there is nothing outside of their knowledge about themselves. There is nothing that I do not know about myself. That's the assumption. They assume they are all-knowing about their lives, all-knowing about their attitude, all-knowing about their thoughts, and all-knowing about their feelings. The reality is every single one of us has tunnel vision. Every single one of us cannot see outside of what we want to see. It's very difficult to do so. Very often we need to search out different people's perspectives. We need to spend time and learn from those perspectives. And I'm not talking about an unbiblical perspective, but nonetheless, an, a, a different perspective. Again, I believe this. If we are going to rebuild to our fullest potential, we are going to need some accountability. We're going to need some accountability. The first six chapters of the book of Ezra have little or nothing to do with a man by the name of Ezra. Has anybody else noticed that? We've never even mentioned his name one time other than to say, turn to Ezra. (laughs) That's it. Ezra chapter 6 all the way back to chapter 1 has nothing to do with Ezra. But in chapter 7, we are introduced to this man. Now remember, the house of God has been completed. It is rebuilt. They were rejoicing in the things that God had allowed them to accomplish, but they were not done rebuilding yet. You say, Pastor Yeomans, how in the world can they not be done rebuilding because they had the structure up. Everything was in place. It was all ready to go. They they had finished what God had allowed them, or excuse me, had called them to do. Ezra, the first few verses of chapter 7, you can find this, is from the line of Aaron, the priestly line, the line of the Levites. In fact, if you know your Bible a little bit, then you know that there are three uh, types of, of Levites. One that was to take care of the tabernacle, the outside. One that was to take care of the, the structure of the tabernacle. And the other was Ezra's line, who was to take care of the inside of the temple. They were in charge of the vessels. They were in charge of the Ark of the Covenant. They were in charge of the table of showbread. They were in charge of the golden candlestick. All of the vessels in the temple, all the things that went on inside of the temple, that was what Ezra's line was to be taken care of. So I want you to understand, Ezra was not in charge of the outside of the temple. He was in charge of the inside This will be important in a few minutes. Let's look at Ezra chapter 7. Look with me in verse 6. The Bible says, This Ezra 
went up from Babylon, and he was a ready scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. And the king granted him all his requests according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. And there went up some of the children of Israel and of the priests and of the Levites and the singers and the porters and the Nethanims unto Jerusalem. In the seventh year of watch now, Artaxerxes the king. So Darius is no longer, it is now Artaxerxes. And he came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For upon the first day of the first month began he to go up from Babylon, and on the first day of the fifth month came he to Jerusalem according to the good hand of his God upon him. took him five months to get there. Verse 10. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it. Watch now. And to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. Let's have a word of prayer and we'll get into this. Father, thank you so much for this day and for this opportunity that you've allowed us to be here. Thank you for the opportunity to preach your word. And Father, thank you so much for those who have prayed and sought you for this weekend. Father, I pray that you would help us as we continue to move forward. I pray that you would keep your hedge of protection around us. And Father, thank you so much for accountability. Thank you so much for people in our lives that will tell us what we need to hear even when we don't want to hear it. And Father, I pray that you would help us understand this today in our need of accountability. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I believe this. I believe Ezra had been preparing for this moment for a long time. For a very long time. Notice the term that he was a ready scribe. Verse 6. This Ezra went up from Babylon and he was a ready scribe. The Bible uses this term in a way that he was quick. You know, we used to do in school, we used to do all kinds of um, tests, or not tests, um, review games, that's what we called them, before the test. And there were always people that were really quick at it, right? They were always really fast and ready and all of these different things. And, and I, as I looked at this word, I began to wonder, what does that mean? Well, why, did, why were these people quick because on, on review games? Well, here's why. Because they knew the material, Man, I'm telling you what, if you knew science and you, you knew the question that the teacher was asking, what did you do? You, you wrote down the answer very quickly or you stood up and answered the question very quickly or you raised your hand and answered the question very quickly. Listen, Ezra was a ready scribe. He was quick. He knew the law inside out and backwards. Also notice with me in verse 10. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord. He was preparing himself constantly and consistently, preparing himself to seek after God. It was Ezra's intention to seek God in his law. Look at the end of this verse. And to do it. It wasn't just to know it, but it was to put it into practice. Not only that, look, and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. It was Ezra's intention to seek God, to seek his law, to do it, and then to teach others also. That was his goal. That's what he wanted to accomplish in his life. Now the story continues all the way through chapter 7 with the letter that Artaxerxes writes for Ezra. Ezra gets a letter, and he takes it with him all the way through his journey and gives it to the people 
and lets people know that Artaxerxes has sent him, and you can take your time and read that letter if you so desire. It explains what Ezra was supposed to do with the gold. It explains what Ezra was supposed to do with the silver. It also explains that there was the vessels for the temple that were once taken out of the temple. It explains all of that, but I want you to jump down to verse 27 of Ezra chapter 7. Verse 27. I want you to watch this now. Blessed be the Lord God of our fathers, which hath put such a thing as this in the king's heart. Watch this now. To beautify the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. I want you to understand this. The king's intention was to beautify the house of the Lord. The king's intention was to beautify the house of the Lord. Now let me ask you, is there anything wrong with this? Absolutely not. Absolutely not, there's nothing wrong with this. The king's intention was to help out the king's intention. Hey, I've given you gold, I've given you silver, I'm giving you back the vessels of the temple. Listen, this is a good thing. He wants to beautify the temple. But listen, as we rebuild our lives, this is what we often do. We often look for someone to help us beautify the outside of our temple. We often look for somebody to help us with how we look outwardly to other people. When in reality, you know what we ought to be doing? We ought to be looking for people like Ezra. Most of us look for a king that can supply us and give us nice things. Hey, I want to be your friend. You got a lot of money. I, I, I want you to speak into my life. And listen, there's not necessarily anything wrong with that, but that's pretty shallow. We need to find people like Ezra. Again, Ezra was not so much concerned with the physical aspects of the house of God. He was concerned with the spiritual. You can see that, verse 10. And to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. He was preparing himself to be able to teach spiritually to the children of Israel. He was concerned with the spiritual. I want you to understand this. The children of Israel had a pretty important spiritual problem that needed addressing. All of chapter 8, you can see the details of how Ezra traveled, made it to Jerusalem. And what he did when he got there. One of the greatest things I love about chapter 8 is that Ezra said, I could not ask, I could not ask the king for soldiers because I am claiming that my God can take care of us. And so I did not ask my king for soldiers and here we are facing some trials and tribulations and we fasted at the river Ahava. We fasted there and prayed that God would protect us and sure enough, God protects them. I love that. It's an amazing part of the story. But Ezra chapter 9 is where I want to continue this story. Ezra chapter 9, verse 1. The Bible says this. Now, when these things were done, the princes came to me saying, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites, oh, that's interesting, priests and Levites, the spiritual leaders, watch now, have not separated themselves from the people of the lands, doing according to their abominations, even of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. But they have taken 
of their daughters for themselves and for their sons so that the holy seed have mingled themselves with the people of those lands. Yea, the hand of the princes and rulers hath been chief in this trespass. And when I heard this thing, this is Ezra speaking, I rent my garment and my mantle and plucked off the hair of my head and of my beard and sat down astonished. Then were assembled unto me everyone that trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the transgression of those that have been carried away. And I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. Very simply, the Jews had intermarried with the people of the land, the people that they were supposed to be separated from years and years and years and years ago. Not only did they commit this heinous crime, which we understand, but they were also committing abominations before the Lord. It wasn't just that they intermarried, it was that they were committing abomination. And though the temple was built, they had accomplished what God had set out for them to do. Their lives were not right before God. They had the temple, they had the, the presence of God in their land again. It was no longer a shambles. It was no longer something that they could not be proud of. They had something that they could rejoice over and they were moving forward and things were going really well, but they were living in open sin. And it was almost as if they didn't even really notice or care. Just continuing to move in a direction that they want to move, and this is where Ezra steps in. This is where it's important to have someone to keep you accountable. Before we get there, I'd like to show you three areas that we often get complacent in our relationship with God. Three areas we often get complacent in our relationship with God. I want you to look at Ezra chapter 9, and I want to read just a, quite a big section here but see if you can pick up three areas in which we fail. Look at verse five. And at the evening sacrifice, I arose up from my heaviness and having rent my garment and mantle, I fell upon my knees and spread out my hands unto the Lord my God and said, oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift up my face to thee. My God, for our iniquities are increased over our head and our trespasses grown up unto the heavens. Since the days of our fathers have we been in great trespass unto this day. And for our iniquities have we, our kings and our priests, have been delivered into the hand of kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, and to a spoil, and to confusion of face as it is this day. And now for a little space, grace hath been showed from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a nail in his holy place that our God may lighten our eyes and give us a little reviving in our bondage. For we were bondmen, yet our God hath not forsaken us in bondage, but hath extended mercy unto us in the sight of the kings of Persia to give us a reviving to set up the house of our God and to repair the desolations thereof, to give us a wall in Judah and in Jerusalem. And now, O oh our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken thy commandments, which thou hast commanded by the servants, the prophets, saying, the land unto which ye go to possess it is an unclean land with the filthiness of the people of the lands, 
with their abominations, which have filled it from one end to another with their uncleanness. Now therefore give not your daughters unto their sons, neither take their daughters unto your sons, nor seek their peace or their wealth forever, that ye may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come up on us, for our evil deeds and for our great trespass, seeing how our God has punished us less than our iniquities, deserve and has given us such deliverance at this. Should we again break thy commandments and join in affinity with the people of these abominations? Wouldst not thou be angry with us till thou hast consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor escaping? O Lord God of Israel, thou art righteous, for we remain yet escaped as it is this day. Behold, we are before thee in our trespasses, for we cannot stand before thee because of this. I think this is so important. It just shows the heart of Ezra. It shows how badly Ezra wanted for the people of God to be right. And basically everything that he's saying is true. Listen, we, we were your people, and we got involved with the people of this land once before, and that's why we were taken captive. We were taken captive, and now you've given us a little space, and you've given us a little grace, and now we have this opportunity before us, and here we are again, still disobeying your commands, still committing abomination. The first place that we get complacent in our relationship with God is the space of grace. The space of grace. Look with me again in verse 8. And now for a little space, grace hath been showed from the Lord our God. This is when God gives us a time where things seem to be going very well. Again, think about it. The Jews had seen some great accomplishment. They had seen some great things happen in their lives. They were moving forward. Things seemed to be going very, very well. There are not any, quote, immediate problems. Nothing in front of them that, oh, my goodness, we've got a war coming. Or, oh, my goodness, there's, there's trials and tribulations. No, no, they've already walked through all of those things. Things seem to be going very well. Listen, this is where we often find ourselves. In fact, the Bible tells us that we live under grace. And God has blessed us immensely. We live in the greatest country with some of the greatest things. We have so much. We have so many things that we can look to. We, we, we become complacent in our relationship with God simply because we no longer need God. We're not going through necessarily a huge trial. We're not necessarily going through some serious difficulties in our life. Everything seems to be going super well. It's a space of grace. And in reality, we think we don't need God, but in reality, what a space of grace should do, it should make us extremely grateful for the time that God has given us. We should be extremely grateful for the blessings in which he has so abundantly bestowed upon us. Think about it. These children of Israel had completed the portion of what God had asked them to do. 
And here, instead of charging forward, continuing to be thankful, continuing to move forward and asking God, all right, what's next? They sit back and say, ah, we finished what God called us to do and now we're done. They've got this space of grace, but not only a space of grace, number two, we see extended mercy. If you see this in verse 9, for we were bondmen, yet our God hath not forsaken us in our bondage, but hath extended mercy unto us in the sight of the kings of Persia. Again, understand, the children of Israel deserved to be in bondage. If you take a look at the children of Israel's history, you understand that when they did wrong, they got into bondage. And when they got into bondage, they would get uh, right with God, and then a judge would come, and the judge would free them, and they would get this mercy from the king. And then they would get into sin, which would end up leading them back into bondage, and then they would get right with God, and then a judge would come, and it would continue. Because there was this extended mercy. They had been disobeying God for so long and now they're living in bondage in Persia, most of them. But now they've been extended mercy. They've been allowed to step out of that bondage and experience a space of grace. Listen, do you realize that it's only by the mercy of God that we even live in grace we don't deserve what we are experiencing right now. Hear me. We do not deserve what we are experiencing right now. The children of Israel did not deserve to have extended mercy. This often drives us to complacency because we end up feeling like we do deserve the mercy that we are receiving. We, we feel like we deserve it. We deserve it, and in, in reality, hear me, it's mercy. You don't deserve mercy. You know what you deserve? You deserve wages. Mercy is not wages. Mercy is far bigger than that. So if you think, I deserve mercy, you have a faulty thought process of what mercy is. Mercy is, is not getting what you deserve. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. That's what I deserve. But God's mercy has allowed me to experience his grace. We deserve to die for our sins. But God's mercy has provided a way through grace to save us from our sins. Listen, we do not deserve it. Again, what mercy, extended mercy ought to do is not push us back in our seats and get comfortable. It ought to drive us to our knees and be thankful for what God has done and extending his mercy. And number three, I want you to see very quickly a little revival. A little revival. You can see this uh, in verse eight at the end. That our God may lighten our eyes and give us a little reviving in our bondage. You can also see this uh, at the, in the middle of verse 9 to give us a reviving. Listen, grace, mercy, both of them give us a little bit of reviving. 
No doubt, listen, they are, they've been in Persia for how many years and God extends them a little bit of grace. God extends them a little bit of mercy. No doubt there's a little bit of reviving. Hey, I can see the light at the end of the tunnel. Oh man, you get a little bit of excitement and they begin to build the temple and the, 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 the altar goes down and the foundations go down. No doubt there's a little bit of reviving and things begin to get built up and the walls are done and the roof's put on. And listen, things are just going well. No doubt there's a little bit of reviving. But here's the problem. Most of us are completely satisfied with a little bit of reviving. Most of us are completely satisfied with a little reviving, a little victory, a little uplifting. This is all the children of Israel had seen. Hear me. This is all the children of Israel had seen was just a little uptick in their spirituality. We are satisfied with a little progress. And then we stop. We're satisfied with a little progress and then we stop. We don't want to push any further. Hey, just leave well enough alone, right? We are satisfied that we have grown all we need to grow for a time. This is kind of how I believe we view it and this is kind of how I view it. We view it as a long day's work. What do you do after a long day's work? Some of you may not know anymore. <laughs> what do you do after a long day's work? Listen, you sit down, you relax and go, ah, man, what a day. I got a lot accomplished today. And you sit back and you bask in the glow of what you've accomplished. And listen, I understand that. I get that. You think, I've made progress. I deserve because I've sat down and, and, and I deserve to relax because I've worked so hard. But listen, if we view that, that way in our spirituality, ah, I've accomplished something for God. I can take the next day off. Then the day honestly always happens. That day turns into a week. And that week turns into a month. And that month turns into a year. And you go, oh my goodness. Well, how have I gotten to this point in realizing we end up stop, stopped rebuilding? We are not moving forward at all. In reality, instead, we ought to have a little revival. And what, when we have and experience that little revival, guess what we ought to do? We ought to buckle down, fuel the flame, and allow God to spread it in us and through us. Say, Pastor Yeomans, what in the world is all this pointing to? All this points to the fact that we need someone in our lives that will not just care about the external things, but will care about the internal. Listen, there are people around you that are like Ezra, that are searching after God, that are seeking after him, that want to teach. And there are people that don't want to quit. The moment they experience a little space of grace, the moment they experience a little extended mercy, the moment they experience a little reviving, they want to experience God in his fullest. Listen, you need to seek someone out like that and continue, continue, continue to rebuild. Find someone that will continue to push you even when you don't want to be pushed. 
Ezra confronts the people with their sin. Hey guys, you're not right. You're not right. You're doing things wrong. And guess what? Ezra chapter 10, you see, guess what? They get it right. They get right with God. They turn their spiritual lives around and guess what they do? They continue to move forward and they continue to rebuild. Hear me, we need accountability. It had been years since the end of the rebuilding process and now Ezra's coming in and he finds a problem and he keeps them accountable and guess what they continue to do? They continue to rebuild. Then you see the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah comes in, begins to continually rebuild. We need accountability. I want to finish this message with a very personal illustration. Now I want you to please don't judge me for what I'm about to tell you. But as a pastor, I I got to a point where I was pretty proud of where I was. Not just as a pastor, but as a husband as a father, even as a son, I would talk to my parents and I could tell that they were proud of me. Listen, that's not a bad thing. That's, that's okay. But in my mind, that's the way I was thinking. I was basically just basking in the goodness that God had allowed in our lives. And I understood it was not something that I had done, but it was God through me. And I'll be honest, I was thankful to him for all that he's done. And I would sit there and I would bask in that. And listen, that's okay to bask in the goodness of God. But I had felt like I had accomplished some things in my life. And no, I didn't necessarily stop my Bible reading and prayer. I didn't stop my devotions. I didn't stop preaching. I didn't stop doing any of those things. But in my heart and in my mind, I had felt like I had reached the top. But God was not done with me yet. A couple of weeks ago, I was facing a problem. I had the wonderful privilege of sitting up till 2 o'clock in the morning, thinking and praying about it. I was on the couch, and in my view, I'm sitting there praying, not praying anything for me, praying for the other people involved. It was just something that I needed to pray for them for, and I just had to deal with the repercussions of it. But I remember sitting there and praying to God, if it's me, if I'm missing something, you need to show me. You need to slap me upside the head. I've said to him many times. I want you to understand, this is not the first time I've ever prayed this prayer about this specific problem. In all reality, I genuinely want to do and to be right in everything that I do. But here I am sitting in the dark and praying, God, work this problem out, and if it's me, show me. I hate when God answers prayers like this. The next day, we had a staff meeting. Now, I want you to understand, the staff and I have a pretty open relationship. I have asked them early on and many times if they see anything in my life that might be a problem. They have every right and ability to confront me about that. 
And I'm so thankful that they have many, many times. After that staff meeting and later in the day, we happened to have another meeting about something that they saw that needed to change. While they were talking, they started, honestly, they started with external things. That's fine because that's all they could see. The longer we talked, and I, I always ask questions for clarification. So you're saying, and I just continue to ask these types of questions. The more questions I asked for clarification, the more I realized the problem was not external. The problem was actually me. It was not so much the external factors that were being discussed. There was a problem in my life, listen, that I had never seen before. And I want want to tell you this. This is something that my wife has been talking to me about for 10 years. For 10 years she's been saying, and I I began to weep, cry, as a grown man in front of two other grown men. And just say, it's me. It's my fault. And my wife for 10 years, and every time she would say, I would deny it. Because in my mind, I didn't have this problem. I had never seen it before. But I praise the Lord, there were two men and an amazingly patient wife that continued to show me where I was wrong, somewhere that I needed to change that had been there for at least 10 years. I want to tell you something. I need accountability. I need it. And these men and my wife not had difficult conversations with me about my faults and my failures. Guess what? I would have continued to stunt my growth as a pastor, as a father, as a husband, and as a son. Because, hey, I'm totally good with where I'm at. That prayer and those conversations have literally changed my life. Now, they may not ever see them necessarily anything on the outside immediately, but it was something that was internal, and eventually it would come out. You might think, well, that's no big deal, but I'm telling you what, that was the biggest answer to prayer that I've, I've had in a long time. Immediate answer to prayer. And it was not the solution that I wanted. But I needed someone to step in and say, it's you. And God did that because of conversations. I am so thankful for the staff and for my wife and to God for never letting me coast. Never letting me sit back and say, we've arrived. For always keeping me accountable. Listen to me, every one of us needs someone like Ezra. Every one of us needs someone in our lives that will keep us accountable. Who do you have to keep you accountable? Let me ask this even further. Who outside of your spouse do you have to keep you accountable? My wife had been telling me that for 10 years. And I didn't listen. I thought I knew better. Who do you have keeping you accountable? We all need someone to call us out when we are not completely done rebuilding. 
All the outside may have looked okay. But the inside was full of dead men's bones. We need a relationship with God that is not complacent, but that is progressing forward. You must have accountability if you are going to fully rebuild so that you can continue to move forward. You must. And so I challenge you this morning. Who is keeping you accountable? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you so much for the people that you've put into my life that are not afraid to have difficult conversations, that are not afraid to stand up and call me out when I need to be called out. Father, I'm so thankful for that. Thank you for answering my prayer. Thank you for showing me where I was wrong. I pray that I would never get into a position where I coast and become complacent again. Continue to help me move forward. Father, for these people that sit in front of me, there's one here that doesn't even know you as personal Savior, doesn't even know what it is to have a relationship with you. And Father, I pray today they would know that. that they would enter into a relationship with you and that you would help them to grow and rebuild in their lives. Well, Father, for those that know, I pray that they would find someone to be accountable to. Find someone that will have difficult conversations with them. Find someone who won't leave them alone but will want them to continue to move forward. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to grow closer to you every single day. Thank you for dying on the cross for our sins. We pray all these things in your name and I ask you to keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed. I'm gonna really challenge you to make a decision today. A decision that maybe you might say, I am going to intentionally seek out someone to keep me accountable. Or maybe I am intentionally going to seek out someone who will help me continue to rebuild. I don't know what your decision needs to be necessarily, but I know it's you need to find somebody to keep you accountable. I'm going to challenge you to write that down somewhere. Put the date by it. Within the next year, I will have someone keeping me accountable. I don't, I don't know for sure how you want to word those things, but let's make a decision. Let's go ahead and do that right now.